His last words were, Lady, you shot me, before his naked body slumped to the floor. A single bullet to the chest killed the King of Soul at the height of his career. This is the story of Sam Cooke. Welcome to the Crime Soup Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Kanapis. And I'm Kaylee. And this week is our season finale. Soup season will resume again in October, but before we leave, we're going to tell you one hell of a story. Let's get into it. Okay, so Kaylee, today we're going to be talking about Sam Cooke. And I have no idea who that is. Like, absolutely no idea? Absolutely no idea. I don't know if I'm, like, going to offend the true crime community, but I have no idea who Sam Cooke is. Okay, so you're going to offend several communities. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> this is going to be really interesting. Actually, I think once I start talking about him, maybe he'll his name will ring a bell. It's possible that I know the story, kind of, but not his name. No, you probably don't know the story. It's oh. not... It's famous among certain circles, but not everyone. I grew up sheltered. We're going to talk about Sam Cooke's murder, but leading up to his murder, there was a lot of important things in his life. Uh, that are going to factor in later. So I'm going to do a not-so-brief history of his life so you can get an idea and a feel for who he was. Okay. So first off, the life and death of Sam Cooke is shrouded in controversy and conspiracy theories. So we're going to break this down bit by bit and talk about how one of the biggest pop stars in the world met his demise in a fleabag motel wearing nothing but a sport coat and one shoe. For those of you unfamiliar with the life and career of Sam Cooke, he was first and foremost an entertainer. From the age of seven, he knew he wanted to be a musical performer, but he came from a humble household. His great-grandmother had been a slave in Mississippi, which is where Sam was eventually born in 1931. Sam's father, the Reverend Charles Cooke Sr., was a Baptist minister, but his full-time job was actually as a domestic servant for a wealthy family in town. When the Great Depression struck, Charles lost his job and decided to move his family to Chicago, Illinois. Though far from ideal, working conditions in northern states like Illinois were less oppressive than those in the south, so the Cook family settled in an apartment on East 36th Street in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's south side, which was not a nice neighborhood. It was very overcrowded. It was dominantly black and Within a few years, the family had eight children, so their tiny apartment was just bursting at the seams. And to clarify, Sam Cooke was one of those children, or he was the father of those children? He was the fifth oldest of eight children. Okay. So Sam's father, he was a Baptist minister, right? And he was described as strict but loving. The only music he approved of his kids listening to was gospel music. They weren't allowed to go to movies or dances. Blues music was strictly forbidden because he believed it would jeopardize his kids' well-being. He could command a room with his powerful demeanor without ever raising his voice in churches and at home. But as fiery as their father Charles was, his wife was the exact opposite. Their mother Annie married when she was only 16 years old. She was quiet and unassuming. 
but always welcomed any stray child to join them for dinner. Their small apartment was always bursting at the seams, with neighbors and friends constantly coming and going. Sam was their fifth child, and he inherited much of his looks and mannerisms from his father. And just like his father, Sam never tolerated nonsense. No matter how rich or famous Sam would become, he was still a black man living through a time of segregation, Jim Crow laws, and strong prejudices. So although Sam was handsome, talented, and eventually very successful, he still had to fight for better treatment throughout his entire life, up until the bitter end. So I want to talk about Sam's childhood and his experience with music and how he eventually developed his successful music career. So Sam's earliest exposure to music was through his father's church. And so him and his four older siblings had a somewhat of a, I guess, a choir, you might call it, where he and his four older siblings would warm up the congregation and they would sing gospel music. And this group was called just simply the Singing Children. And he did this regularly at churches until he turned 14 or he was about in his freshman year of high school, which is when he kind of outgrew it and felt like this isn't cool anymore. And then beginning his freshman year of high school, he and some of his friends actually formed a quartet and they would travel the local church circuit. That's so cute. I love that. They did this his entire high school career. And according to his mom, Annie, this is what she said about it. She says, Sam sounded innocent, but in a masculine way. He was strong yet sensitive at the same time. He was handsome, pleasant, and always polite. He made the women in the pews at church melt like butter. (laughs) And I've heard a couple of different accounts about Sam singing at this age. And it's it's interesting because even at a young age, even like as a baby-faced teenager when he would perform at these churches, there were like teenage girls and grown women who it was actually described that they would line up outside the church like oh he was God. the star. He was a celebrity. They said that he was. And it was specifically him that all these women were in love with and girls would throw themselves at him. Oh. <laughs> so he was he was very desirable, even even as like a teenager. This makes right? me want to listen to some of his music. Can I now? Can I like listen to one of his like just an excerpt of one of his songs right now? No. Or no. No. no, no. no? Ah, I want to hear him so bad. I mean, uh, I guess you could. I'm the thing is, is like, once you look him up, I'm sure you know him. Okay, so you want you want to keep me in suspense longer? Yes. Okay, okay, okay. That's fair. Okay. Okay, so he did that for pretty much his whole high school career, right? So four or five years, he would travel around with his friends, and they would tour the church circuit. But while this was happening, they saw him as kind of like a junior performer, right? Because he wasn't an adult yet. Yeah. So even though he was really good, people still didn't take him entirely seriously because he was still just a child. Mm -hmm. But he and his friends, they would also go to performances from another quartet, a professional quartet of adult men who were called the Soul Stirrers. And there was actually a tiny bit of jealousy and conflict where Sam's quartet, which were called the Highway QCs, would show up to performances done by the Soul Stirrers. And teenage girls there would recognize Sam and they would <laughs> shout at the Soul Stirrers like, we want Sam, put Sam on the stage or put the Highway QCs on this stage. And the Soul Stirrers like kind of hated it. I bet. <laughs> these, these grown men are like, no, this is our performance, right? And yeah. they would just kind of roll their eyes and sometimes they would just ignore it. But actually what ended up happening is the lead vocalist of the Soul Stirrers retired and 
so they kind of resigned themselves to like we should we should offer Sam the position as lead vocalist because uh-huh. he already has this huge following. Girls love him. He would rocket us to stardom, right? Yeah, but it was it was a humbling experience because these were all adult men and Sam was like an 18, 19 year old boy. Mm-hmm. And so it was hard for them to do it, but they're like, we should offer him the position. And it was actually really hard for Sam too because when he got offered the position and he would be traveling a much bigger circuit, he'd be much more famous and he'd be making more money, but he also felt sad to kind of be abandoning that last scrap of his childhood with his friends. Were his friends still doing it? Like, did there was there any like resentment or bad feelings about him leaving? I think they were just really sad. You know, it's kind of like that moment when you graduate high school and you have to say goodbye to people and go off to college. Yeah. Okay. You know? But he ended up accepting the position as lead vocalist, and he was only 19 years old. And so the Soul Stirrers are a gospel group, right? How old were the men in the Soul Stirrers? Were they, like, older than 25? Yeah. I think some of them were, like, middle-aged. Oh, okay. He really polished himself up. He got really good. Um, His stage presence got better. But there's a reoccurring theme in Sam's life, which is that um, he loves women. (laughs) He is... He's a womanizer. He's very suave. He's very smooth. Not in like a skeezy way, but just like women flock to him because he's so sweet and he's really handsome and talented. And I can't even blame him, but like women were just throwing themselves at him left and right and he didn't always say no. (laughs) So he runs into an issue when he's very young and by the age of 22, he had already fathered three children by three different women. Oh no. And it gets even crazier, though, because in just one month, April of 1953, all three babies were born. (laughs) So not even like three children over the course of years, but like in April of 1953, three different babies were born to him. (laughs) So um, the first one, so Evelyn Jackson gave birth to a daughter named Paula on April 8th. Mm Mm-hmm. Maureen Somerville had a daughter named Denise on the 23rd, and his childhood sweetheart, Barbara Campbell, had a daughter named Linda on April 25th, just two days later. Happy fucking birthday. (laughs) Oh my God. That would be stressful. (laughs) Personally. (laughs) I mean, lucky for you, you can't father children. (laughs) Yeah. But like imagining myself in that in that situation, I'd be big stressed. Yeah. So this is actually kind of a critical point in his life where obviously he was having a lot of unprotected sex. He wasn't being responsible. Obviously, he's too young to actually take responsibility for all of these children. Yeah. Um, Throughout his life, he did monetarily provide for all of his children. He ends up having seven in total by the end of his life. And he tries to be responsible about it and he does try and provide for them but at the same time he can't really be present for all of them no because these women live all over the country yeah in october of 1953 so six months after all of his children are born he ends up actually marrying a single mother whose name is dd and she already has a son from a previous marriage named joey and fills in as as a father figure for her son joey Mm -hmm. and here's a quote i have from joey about what it was like having sam cook as his stepfather he says sam never hesitated to introduce me to celebrities or crowds of people as his son he always made me feel warm inside always made me feel like his son 
One time he brought me on stage at the Apollo Theater and I was terrified. He put his arms around me and I realized that everything was gonna be all right. When I was around him, he made me comfortable and confident. Oh. Yeah, really cute. That's Joey really absolutely cute. Yeah. Joey absolutely loved having Sam as his stepfather. Mm-hmm. But like with a lot of celebrity relationships, it was really hard on Dee Dee that Sam was always traveling. Oh, I'm sure. So they were only married for five years before his work life was just too hard on her and they eventually divorced. She and Joey moved back to California where she was from and she actually ended up dying in a car accident soon after that. Sad. And what's even more sad too on top of that is that Joey ended up getting raised by his uncle and his uncle didn't want Joey to have any contact with Sam. So Joey spent the rest of his life, like his young adulthood, not really knowing Sam. That's really sad. Yeah. But something about Sam's personality that is present throughout his whole life is that he always wants to be doing better. Like his whole goal is to get bigger, to do better, to become more polished. And during his six years with the Soul Stirrers, he was doing really well and he was getting a lot of fans and getting a lot of attention that he desired. But he knew that he could be bigger and he could be better. And he knew that gospel wasn't going to take him to the top. Mm-hmm. But if you remember back to his childhood, his father did not condone modern music. Yeah. And so that was still that was still conditioned into him, right? He respected his parents and he didn't want to disappoint them. And he essentially had been told that pop music, um, anything that evoked like sexual feelings mm-hmm. was from the devil. I think he's a little bit past that. <laughs> <laughs> Father Fathering three children yeah. by three different women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so... He just, he came to this breaking point where he was really torn on what he should do because he knew what he wanted to do and what he felt like he, he felt like he could be really successful, but he also didn't want to disappoint his family and his, and he didn't want to turn his back on his upbringing. So the transition from being one of the soul stirrers, being the lead vocalist of the soul stirrers and breaking out into pop, it was a slow transition. And essentially it started with... Sam really wanted to do pop, but he didn't want to make it obvious that he wanted to do the devil's music. <laughs> and so he started writing and arranging songs for the Soulstorers and like sneakily including <laughs> things that were a little bit more poppy. Like in the lyrics or in the actual composition of the music? I don't know. Like, I don't know exactly what the what constitutes pop if he was just like maybe including a little bit more drum you know what I mean like he was just making it a little bit less god oriented so in 1955 Sam wrote and arranged a song called he's my guide for the Soulstorers, and it came closer to cross the pop line than any of their songs to date so he's starting to play with fire right yeah he's gotten a taste for arranging pop music and he really wants to do more I mean he eventually oh sorry I was gonna say it's not like the Soulsters didn't fucking know I mean they were rehearsing together like they probably rehearsed songs for like (laughs) days and hours and hours so all of a sudden they're performing they're like wait a goddamn second (laughs) this this sounds like fucking Elvis Presley like, <laughs> so uh, my immediate reaction is they were, they were down with it, at least without words being explicitly said. 
<laughs> yeah. And like Pop was getting harder to ignore. So like and also it gave them a lot of positive attention because Pop is what their listeners wanted deep yeah. down. Like the teenagers, like any teenager, like, yeah, they'll go to this gospel concert because it's what my parents will let me go to. But I'm secretly hoping that there's going to be some rhythm in there. Yeah. So Sam eventually becomes too restless and he gets too big for the gospel scene. He was really big in the black Christian community, but he knew he could be much bigger. Mm hmm. So he realized he really needed to branch out into pop music if he wanted to grow. In 1957, he releases a solo song. Like he just, he records it in secret, essentially. Oh. And he uses a pseudonym and he calls himself Dale Cook. So he changes his first name. <laughs> and <laughs> that's just kind of silly to me. Everyone's like, wait a second. Well, he's really scared because his family doesn't know that he's playing with the devil's music. Well, yeah, but like he just changed his first name. So like <laughs> everybody who knows what his voice sounds like is like, well, that can't be Sam because this guy's name is Dale, even though they have the same last name. Anyways, if I, I'm just giggling about that a little no, bit. No, no, no. So that's exactly what happens. Oh. <laughs> because he releases this song and everyone's like, that sounds exactly like Sam Cooke. <laughs> Because he has a distinct voice. I, I would imagine. Yeah. And the song, it wasn't good, but it wasn't bad. It was just kind of an experiment. It was kind of like his first draft. He was kind of testing out the waters. Yeah, it was his first try. And the biggest criticism of it is that he tried to make it a pop hit, but he still was deeply rooted in his gospel mm -hmm. sound. So the song didn't quite make it. It still sounded a little bit too gospel-y. But his, it gets back to his father, that Sam is secretly recording pop music. And it turns out that his his father isn't terribly mad about it. Oh. Um, so Sam comes clean and says like, you know, I really want, I want to be bigger. I think I can do really well, but I want to start making pop music. And his father gives him his blessing, essentially saying like, you know what? Your musical talent was given to you by God. So I think you should, you should use that talent. Hell yeah, Daddy Cook. Yeah, Daddy Cook. <laughs> So he's, like we said before, his father is strict but loving. Like, mm -hmm. he just wants what's best for his kids and he wants them to be happy. Love that. So this is the transitionary period where finally Sam Cooke is like, wow, I can I can do this. Like, I can start performing pop. I've got my father's blessing. And later that year, in September of 1957, Sam Cooke writes and records a song called You Send Me. And it blows way up. It is a smash hit with not just his usual black audience, but also the white audience of America. It soars to number one on both the pop and R&B charts and stayed on the charts for 26 weeks. Holy shit. Which is six months. Holy shit. Eventually selling over 1.7 million singles. Good for him. This is his essentially first song after his first one was, you know, kind of a miss. Well, he wasn't all in. He was still hiding in the shadows when he gave it his whole self. He People loved it. Yeah. So like from the very beginning, like his very first song that he releases, people are He does crazy. Well. Yeah. Yeah. And his family describes it as absolutely insane because everyone was listening to this song, right? Mm -hmm. It was number 1. So 
his family would say that they would be walking around Chicago and all of their neighbors would have their windows open and you could hear Sam's voice from oh like every God. household. And of course they're loving this. They're like, that's my brother. Yeah. That's my son, you uh-huh. know, that everyone is listening to. So if you're tracking this, in just 1957 alone, he goes from being, you know, Sam Cook, the soul stirrer, gospel performer, to Dale Cook, the kind of weird... <laughs> <laughs> in between. And then by the end of the year, when You Send Me comes out in the fall, he actually adds an E to the end of his name. So originally his name is Cook, spelled C-O-O-K. Mm-hmm. But I guess there was a, a superstition at the time among musical artists that if your name ended in a K, that it was bad luck. Interesting. I wonder why. And so it was better to add an E at the end and apparently Sam Cooke wasn't the only one who did this. Also, Dion Warwick added an E to the end of her name. That's really interesting. I really want to know how that started. And so by the end of the year, he had two number one solo singles because that record had an A and a B side. And so he was quickly rising as a pop star. After he starts climbing the ladder and he starts recording more singles, he quickly flies into stardom and he has money to burn, right? All of his nieces and nephews recall how their Uncle Sam would take them to a place called the Riverview Amusement Park in Chicago, (laughs) which at the time was the world's largest amusement park. And the kids were allowed to eat, ride, and buy everything they wanted all day. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Oh my God. Uncle Sam was the best. So I think they would do this like once a year where it was like their one day, the sky's the limit, ride all the rides you want. Um, In a book written by his family about his life, they described how he would like bribe the the ride operators with like $50 bills and be like, just let them ride as many times as they want. (laughs) God damn. He paid for everything. And whenever they would show up to the amusement park, they'd be in limousines and they'd be in his like brand new convertible, right? And one of his qualities that's often described by everyone that knew him was that he just had this never ending generosity. And it was one of his most prominent characteristics. Like if you mattered to him, there was no amount of money that he wouldn't spend on you. We love that. Yeah. (laughs) How do I get an uncle like that? (laughs) And... Another thing about Sam is that, because he had all of this money from all of his success, he always wanted the best of everything. Like, he never settled for something that was subpar. Like, if there was two different options, he would always choose the higher quality one. Good for him. He never denied himself (laughs) anything really nice, right? He wasn't stingy. Because, you know, there's a lot of wealthy people where it's like the reason they had that much money, they're they're not generous. They're not generous about it. They, like, they're stingy about it. They're penny pinchers, yeah. But that was not Sam. But I also imagine in like an era of Jim Crow and segregation, like he was barred from a lot of the nicest things in this world had to offer, right? Based on his race alone. So he, on principle, like probably was interested in, yeah, and I do not blame him. Good for him. So another story about Sam that's really important So these may not seem important stories right now, but they do tie back together and factor into when we're going to analyze his murder. Mm -hmm. So keep this story about the amusement park and his spending habits in mind. Okay. Also, another story that his family tells is that there was one time where after he had reached some level of fame, his car broke down and the police showed up and police at this time, brutality against black men 
was really commonplace, even if it was completely unwarranted. Basically, if you were a black man at this time, you didn't want to have anything to do with police, mm-hmm. even if you were completely innocent of anything, right? Yeah. His car breaks down and a police off- a white police officer shows up and basically orders Sam to just get out of the car and push it himself. What? And this is where we see an example of how Sam is really similar to his father. So his father was very no-nonsense. When his father felt like something was wrong, he always would stand up for himself. When people treated him poorly, especially because of his skin color, he would call out that nonsense and be like, no, you are not doing this. This is wrong. And Sam was the exact same way. Anytime he was confronted and was obviously being the recipient of prejudice, he would call it out. So the policeman who told him that he needed to get out and push his car, Sam said, I am a singer. I'm not a pusher. I don't push cars, right? (laughs) He's like... If you need me to pay for it to be towed, I will pay for it, but I'm not getting out and pushing this car. Yeah. And he said this very assertively to a police officer, which at the time was very dangerous. Yeah. Another interesting story about Sam is that at this time, he was traveling all over the country, and depending on where he went in the country, there were segregated audiences. So he might get uh, hired to perform at a club or a venue and there would be seating for white people in one on one side and there'd be seating for black people people on the other side right and either sam would flat out just refuse to perform at those clubs if they were segregated Mm -hmm. which is a loss of money right so he's showing principle or he would perform but he would spend the entire performance facing the black audience and ignoring (laughs) the white audience (laughs) yeah well how fucking insane is it to segregate a, a fucking audience to watch a black man perform like are you, it, it doesn't make sense in any context but it's especially like if you don't see the irony in that situation that you're then, hiring a black artist yes then then you might be too racist to function I think we should just get rid of <laughs> they you. weren't functioning yeah exactly <laughs> none of it was working but there's there were little things like that in his life where you might not call it like overt defiance but in in little ways he was telling people that He's pushing back exactly and that was commonplace for him. When he felt like he was being wronged, he stood up to the, to the police officer. When he felt like the venue was in the wrong, he defied them and he did what he wanted. So that's a key component to his personality. So another thing about Sam that's important to remember, based on accounts from all of his friends and family, he never used any drugs, Mm -hmm. which was kind of rare at the time because a lot of other musicians in the scene had substance abuse problems. Sam did use alcohol, but that was kind of his only vice. That and I would say women. (laughs) So pretty much any time that he was on tour throughout his marriages, he was always sleeping around. Okay. So I would say women and alcohol were probably his two biggest vices. And from here, over the course of the next few years, so the late 50s and the early 60s, Sam gets even bigger because he starts getting more business savvy. When he first got started, he kind of did what, you know what happened with Taylor Swift, how she she started her music career really young and she signed onto a label and they were taking a bulk of her profits. Mm-hmm. So that's really commonplace, right? So record labels, they'll sign on new talent and the contracts that, that they have these artists sign essentially gives them all of the control and all of the rights to that artist's creations. So even though Sam was like this big star, he didn't actually own his music. 
and he was making a lot less money than he should have. He was still doing really well, like don't get me wrong, he was still really wealthy and doing well, Mm -hmm. but he could have had a lot more. So this prompted Sam to try and find a new label, which wasn't really the right move, but at the time he signed on with RCA Records Mm -hmm. and they provided him a $100,000 signing bonus and they offered him ownership of his publishing rights, which was practically unheard of. Wow. Which he didn't have any of that with his previous label. So he switches labels. They give him $100,000. He gets full ownership of his music. So essentially he's going to be earning a lot more money from each of his recordings, Mm -hmm. right? He's like an OG Taylor Swift. Yes. He switched from gospel to pop, like Taylor did from country to pop, right? Exactly. (laughs) Switching labels, making money off of his own creation. Yeah. Sam Cooke walked so Taylor Swift could run. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So by the end of 1961, Sam is now 31 years old. So remember his first wife died in that automobile accident? Yeah. Soon after that, he ends up marrying a different mother of his children. Um, Remember he had those three babies in that one month in 1953? Yeah. The April babies. So one of those women who actually at the time I think was only 17, who had one of his children was a woman named Barbara Campbell. Mm -hmm. And she was kind of his childhood sweetheart. And he ends up marrying her, but I don't really love the circumstances of it. Essentially, Sam was juggling tons of different women, these three different women who had his children. And he wanted to make things right. Like it was nagging at him that he was, he had all of these children and he wasn't really present for any of them. Mm-hmm. So he takes a look at the women that he has children with and he decides like, I should probably do the right thing and I should marry one of them oh. and, and take care of my child with them. I don't like that. So exactly. That so he's kind me of icky feelings. Yes, exactly. I I hate it, especially because he actually was really madly in love with a woman named Dot Holloway, no. who he he never lost feelings for. Ugh. And his family, his siblings recently have said like Dot Holloway was his soulmate and he should have just settled down with her and married her because he was madly in love with her and he never, never gave up on her. But he did what he thought was right and he essentially settled on his high school or his childhood sweetheart, Barbara. And they had a daughter named Linda together, but their marriage was not great, which isn't a surprise. Yeah. Um, because he essentially settled for her mm-hmm. and she she felt that. Like she She knows. A woman knows. <laughs> yeah. Because he was he was not madly in love with her. Yeah. And that that would be terrible, right? I could not imagine living like that. It's complicated though, because they have a child together, so that kind of cements their relationship. And she really liked Sam and she wanted to make things work, but he was always sleeping around while he was on tour and she knew about it. Uh and it just crushed her, yeah. right? She, she knew that he, she was never going to be his number one. But they have a child together, and he's monetarily providing for her. And he sets her up really nice. They've got this amazing mansion in Los Angeles. It's mm-hmm. got, like, a pool and, like, a two-car garage, which is really nice at the time. And she has all the finer things in life, and she and her child are being taken care of. So you can see why this kind of puts her in a difficult position, because... If she does break it off because he's cheating on her and doesn't love her, then where is she going to go? Exactly. So she just kind of makes things work and kind of just lives in this unhappy marriage. But eventually it gets to the point where she starts having extramarital affairs, too, because... Because he's doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's 
Well, it's sad because, like, what else is she supposed to do? Yeah. She languish in she, a loveless, loveless marriage, like, for the rest of her life. Exactly. So it gets to the point in their marriage where both of them are just having open affairs. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't blame her. But something really terrible happens. In 1963, they have three kids together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have Linda, who's 10. And then they have Tracy, who I think is a few years old. She's a toddler. And then they have a little boy named Vincent who's 18 months old. And during that summer of 1963, Sam was at the office that day in Los Angeles and his wife was home with the kids. And um, Vincent and Tracy, the two youngest, they were they were tussling over a toy next to the pool. Mm-hmm. And Vincent lost his balance and fell into the pool and drowned. <gasps> no. And Sam was never okay again after that. Yeah. And he already had blamed his wife, Barbara, for a previous incident, actually, at that same house where their daughter, Tracy, something similar happened where she fell in the pool. And so Sam made this really strict rule about it for his wife. That's like, if you guys are not actively watching the kids and you're not like actively using the pool, it needs to have the cover on. Yeah. But that's not what ended up happening. And he blamed her for the rest of his life. Oh, no. And that's essentially where their marriage ended, even though they were still legally married mentally and emotionally, he was completely divorced from his wife because he blamed her for the death of his son. Mm-hmm. Earlier that year before Vincent died, in the spring of 1963, Sam meets a man named Alan Klein, who would end up changing Sam's career forever. In a good way? No. Oh, shit. So Alan Klein, I guess at the time, was just... He was really good with numbers. He was a smart guy. But he was also very manipulative. You might call him a con artist. So Alan Klein meets Sam and promises him that he could audit RCA's ledger, so Sam's record label, right? Mm -hmm. Alan Klein says, hey, I can audit their ledgers at no charge to you, and I bet I can find you additional money that they undoubtedly owe you. So, of course, Sam agrees, and it's just like, at no charge to me, fine. Like, sounds like a great deal, right? Oh, jeez, what's the catch? But Klein, he's really smart, and he... He succeeds because at this time, the label was withholding earnings. So after Klein just amazes Sam with this and says, hey, you know, I got you this extra money that they owe you. It kind of forges a relationship, right? Where now Mm -hmm. Sam is like, hey, I kind of like you. You're getting me money. Yeah. So Klein then promises Sam that he can get him a new contract and recover money owed to him. Is this guy just an auditor? Is like, what is his actual job? Is he a lawyer? So he's described as like an accountant. In quotations. I think he works for himself, though. Like, I don't think he works for someone else. This is what happens, okay? Sounds like mafia. So he befriends artists. He promises to make them more money. He then becomes their accountant. He was an expert at writing contracts with terms and conditions that always seemed to benefit him. And actually, long after Sam Cooke dealt with him, Alan Klein went on to then con the Rolling Stones. Oh, my God. And the Beatles. Oh, my God. And actually, it's been said that Alan Klein was one of the biggest reasons that the Beatles broke up. (laughs) Because they fucking hated this guy. Because he conned them. He schmoozed them. He was a smooth talker. He was really smart. He was good with numbers. He promised them money. He got them money. And then he started kind of funneling money to himself and loading his pockets. Bro figured out the secret formula. But anyways, I hate him. This is all I know about him and I fucking hate him. 
So there was actually, I can't remember who said it, but there was one description of him. Someone said, Alan Klein had all of the charm of a broken toilet seat. <laughs> who said that about him? <laughs> I can't remember. Someone, someone in the music industry describing him was like, he had all of the charms of a broken lavatory seat. <laughs> I want to know how he had this negative reputation and such a shining good reputation at the same time that he was able to con these huge names, these huge people. That's crazy. I don't know what happened to him. Like, I didn't follow his story after Sam Cooke, besides just like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. I'm assuming that eventually people figured out that he was a bad guy, but by then maybe he was just already loaded. What's his name again? Something? Alan Klein. Alan. Why did I say Alvin? But yeah, so I don't know what happens to him after this. American businessman. But essentially what ends up happening and how he cons Sam is Alan Klein lies to Sam and says, we're gonna create a whole new record label where you own everything and you get basically all of the profits and I'm just your employee, so I get a small cut. But what Sam didn't know, because Sam wasn't especially skilled at reading contracts because they can be well, kind of vague. written to deceive if you write them a certain way, right? Exactly. So what Sam didn't know is that Alan Klein, when he formed the new record label, which was called Tracy Limited, named after Sam's daughter, Alan drew up all of the contract and he assigned himself essentially as the owner and the beneficiary. Oh my God. No. Does he stage? Okay. Okay. Sorry. Continue. I'm getting ahead of myself. No, but you're on the right track, right? It's fishy. Yeah. If something ever happened to Sam, Alan Klein would benefit. That's not suspicious. But Sam doesn't know this, right? Like you have to look at the fine print of the contract. So Sam doesn't know this. Okay, so now we're gonna jump to the final two days of Sam's life. So the following year, this is 1964 in December. It's a Wednesday. So Wednesday, December 9th, 1964, Sam comes down with a bout of the flu. But just how Sam is, even though he's sick, he has to be productive. So even on sick days, he's at home and he's getting work done. Wow, he doesn't suffer from the man flu. (laughs) Good guy, Sam. So during this particular sick day, he decides that today would be a good day to review the financial statements for the record label that he and Alan Klein had created together, Mm -hmm. which was Tracy Limited. I'm on the edge of my seat, sorry. Immediately he notices that there's irregularities and he already had a a sinking suspicion that Alan Klein was kind of conning him. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, Sam's not dumb. He also grew up in the ghetto of Chicago. So he's pretty good at reading people and recognizing when people are being dishonest or have ulterior motives. Mm-hmm. And with Alan, from Sam's perspective, he kind of doesn't trust him, but at the same time, Alan's done so much to give him money. He just doesn't know how he's untrustworthy yet. Yeah. And this is where he kind of finalizes it and says, okay, he's been funneling money. He hasn't been using it appropriately. So he makes up his mind on this sick day, on Wednesday, December 9th, that he is officially going to cut ties with Alan Klein and fire him. Mm -hmm. His plan is that on Monday, he's going to fly out to New York and confront him in person. Mm -hmm. It's unknown whether or not Sam gave Klein any kind of warning. His family doesn't know. He did call his family. He talked to his sister actually that day because it was her birth, her 29th birthday. She talked to him at length and knew all about this. His family knew that what was happening and that Sam was gonna cut ties with Klein. Mm-hmm. But we don't know if Klein knew. 
my theory is that Sam probably reached out to Alan and was like, hey, I'm going to fly out to meet with you. That would be reasonable, right? To assume that, but... No, that makes sense, actually. I didn't think about that. You're saying maybe he didn't say why he was coming out, but he probably gave him a heads up like, hey, I'm going to fly out on Monday to see you. And Alan Klein maybe deduced that it was bad. Yeah, with the limited context that Sam gave in a call, potentially. Like, he just knew his con had been found out. Maybe. So the following day on Thursday, Sam is feeling significantly better, which is wild because I feel like when I get the flu, it lasts like a week. But apparently the following day on Thursday, December 10th, he felt well enough that he wanted to go into the office. Um, According to one of his producers, a man named Jess Rand, Sam withdrew $5,000 from a safety deposit box that day, telling Jess that he needed to buy some Christmas presents. So it is, you know, the beginning of December, December 10th. That is about the time that you would buy Christmas presents for people, right? Mm -hmm. But what's odd about this encounter is that Sam had actually already purchased Christmas presents for all of his family back in Chicago. And when he spoke to his sister the day prior, he said like, yeah, I'm already done Christmas shopping. They're in the mail on their way to you. Oh, Also, what's odd about this scenario is that Sam had several credit cards. He didn't need cash. Yeah, so it's not clear why he felt the need to withdraw so much cash to just simply buy Christmas presents. That's weird. Also, there isn't any clear evidence that Sam even went shopping that day. Okay, so my mind immediately goes to buying Christmas presents is a good cover. It's a good conversation starter and he's trying to not appear not suspicious suspicious isn't the right word but maybe not draw attention to the fact that he's withdrawing five thousand and i also think like is he trying to withdraw some cash immediately so that because he thinks alan klein is scamming him so he's trying to protect some of his money by withdrawing it and having it in cash that way alan doesn't have access to it that's a good theory but also five thousand dollars is chump change for sam cook It is. But if he was taking out like more than that, it would be kind of suspicious. Like Alan would probably know, right? I don't know. So the money is really mysterious. We don't know why he withdrew all that cash. I mean, he was a big spender. Uh, We just don't know exactly what his plans were for that particular money. Also, the $5,000 amount is according to Jess Rand, and it can't really be corroborated. So we just have that one eyewitness account, and we don't know how accurate it is. Oh, okay. So it may have been five. It may have been three. We have no idea. Okay. So the exact amount is under scrutiny. Okay, which leads us to the final hours of his life. So we know that he just withdrew a large sum of money, right? So this is December, the evening of December 10th, 1964. And Sam is feeling much better after his bout with the flu the previous day. And he agrees to go out that night to a very high-class Italian restaurant called Martoni's Restaurant. Mm -hmm. So Martoni's was a really high-class Italian restaurant that Sam's secretary recommended to him because it was a place where really prominent people in the music industry would gather and it would be a great place for him to network. So that's why he picked this particular restaurant. And so he meets up with one of his producers, a man named Al Schmidt and Al's wife, Joni, and they agree to meet at nine o'clock and have dinner together. But it's also serving a dual purpose where he also wants to network with people who are there, right? So does he know Al and Joni well? Has he met them before? Yes, he's very close with them. Oh, okay. So he meets up for dinner with them and they corroborate that 
Sam has a large wad of cash with him. They don't know the exact amount, but Joni is cited as saying that it looked like several thousand dollars. Okay. And while Sam's there, he is the life of the party, and he's buying everyone drinks, and he's networking, and he never actually ends up sitting down and eating dinner because he's so busy talking to people, and actually he gets decently drunk where by the end of the night he's had six martinis. So we don't really know what level of functioning he was at. Okay. But we do know from, there were plenty of eyewitnesses. According to Al and Joni, Sam never came down and sat down to dinner with them because he gets distracted by a a really beautiful woman at the bar. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Happens to the best of us. It really does. Anyways, continue. (laughs) So he gets distracted by a beautiful woman, one of his many vices, right? (laughs) Right now, he's got a woman and he's got alcohol. Oh, jeez. A bad combo. He just is infatuated with her. And she's actually with someone, a guitarist that he knows. So he has an in. Okay. So he feels really confident. And using his Sam Cooke charm, this man who just oozes sex appeal, right? I hate that word, but continue. Oozes? I hate that word. Or sex appeal? (laughs) Sex appeal is fine. It's oozes. (laughs) (laughs) So... He ends up kind of weaseling his way between this woman and the man that she's with. (laughs) And he he ends up essentially stealing her away. And they end up, her name is Elisa Boyer. Okay. So him and Elisa, they end up getting real cozy. They keep drinking and they are found like cuddling in a booth, giggling together. So he's completely abandoned his friends and he's like, he just wants to spend time with Elisa. Yeah. Yeah. Elisa is a 22-year-old woman, and she's half British and she's half Chinese. Okay. Eventually, Al, Schmidt, and Joni kind of give up trying to spend the evening with Sam, even though they were supposed to have dinner together. <laughs> the, the plan originally was that they would meet up at the restaurant for dinner, and then they were going to go out to a bar called PJ's and get drinks after. Mm-hmm. But Sam's already had enough drinks. <laughs> So the Schmidts leave and they go to PJ's bar without him and Sam just never shows up. So when it gets close to closing time at the bar, they're like, Sam's probably not coming. It's fine. So they end up going home and they don't they don't see him after that. Okay. But Sam, who I think he was just disoriented and he was infatuated with this woman, he still thinks the plan is to go to PJ's bar and meet up with his friends. So the accounts differ depending on the eyewitnesses, but roughly 1.30 a.m., he finally leaves Martoni's Italian restaurant. So he and Elisa head over to the bar and they get there about 20 minutes before it's supposed to close. They get there about 1.40 a.m. and the Schmitz have already left. So he gets there, but he still kind of wants to have a good time. And so he tries to make the most of the 20 minutes that it's still open. But it's not (laughs) a good time because Elisa doesn't really want to be there. She's kind of done. It's really late. And actually, a man at the bar starts hitting on Elisa. And Sam gets into a quote-unquote tussle with him. Like a physical tussle? I'm assuming. Okay. So he's obviously, I want to say he's kind of drunk and aggressive. I don't know if he would have acted this way if he were sober, but he gets upset at this man supposedly hitting on Elisa. And so they leave when it closes about 2 a.m. Okay. He's like, I rightfully stole this woman from another man. Leave her alone. You're not allowed to. (laughs) Can't. Poor Elisa. I feel so bad for her because the vibe that I get is that she's kind of done and Sam's not really fun anymore because it's really late. 
he's had a little bit too much to drink. He's getting aggressive. And so she tells him that she just wants to go home. Once it's after 1 a.m. for me personally, I'm useless. So (laughs) I would have been like, I am ready to be in my bed fast asleep. They get back into his car. He's got a brand new uh, 1965, which shouldn't even be released yet because it's only 1964, right? He's got a 1965 (laughs) cherry red Ferrari. Oh, my God. It's a convertible, too, right? Yeah, hella nice. And he's he shouldn't be driving. His blood alcohol content is 0.16. Oh, my God. I forgot that he was f***ing drunk. Okay. Yes. Bad news. So he's driving around. He is double the allowable, like, legal limit, mm-hmm. right? And she wants to go home, and she tells him multiple times, like, just take me home. And he says, okay. And the way she describes it is that they're in the car together, and he's just being really flirty and like touching her hair and telling her how beautiful she is. And he's driving way too fast. Mm -hmm. And then he misses her exit. Ah, shit. And she tells him again, like, I really want to go home. And he says, we're just going to go for a drive. I don't like that. Neither does she. He ends up driving for about 35 minutes. And he ends up in South Los Angeles. (sighs) And he takes... He takes her to a really, really dumpy motel. What the hell? And this particular motel is called the Hacienda Motel. It's on Figaro Street. It's not there anymore, I don't think. But we know time-wise that it's about 30 to 40 minute drive. So we know that they were in the car for quite a while. So it's unclear why he picked this particular motel when there were so many that were much would have been much closer. And also, isn't this, like, not really like him? He's kind of like a showy guy. Like, why wouldn't he pull out all the stops to impress her at, like, a really nice hotel? Right? Like, that... Exactly. That seems more, like, on brand for him. So, did he just have to be here for another reason? And just took her there anyway? That is one of the biggest mysteries about this case. So, yes, valid question. We don't have an answer to it, but everyone should be side-eyeing this because, like we know from all of his friends and family, Sam always wanted the best. It makes little to no sense that he would drive 35 minutes out of his way to go to a really dumpy motel, which this was a pay-by-the-hour motel. So weird. He's going to take his Ferrari to this hotel? That's That's crazy. Exactly. So you're already seeing the issue with this story, right? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And Sam isn't alive to corroborate this. So this is from Elisa's testimony. Okay. So this is what she says happened next. Uh, They drive up to the motel office. He jumps out and he has to sign the ledger to reserve a room. And he's talking to the owner, or not the owner, the manager, sorry. Mm -hmm. The manager is a 55-year-old black woman named Bertha Franklin. And what we know from Bertha's testimony is that Sam walked in, said he wanted a room. And she told him that if he was going to bring Elisa back with him, that they needed to sign in as a married couple. So he writes in the ledger, Mr. and Mrs. Sam Cook. His real name. He writes his real name. What Elisa says happens next is she tells him again that she does not want to be there with him. She wants to go home. Mm -hmm. But he drives her around to the room. He grabs her by the arm, pulls her into the room pins her on the bed, starts ripping off her clothes, and attempts to rape her. What the fuck? What the- What? Was he drugged? 
We don't know. What happens in the motel room isn't entirely clear, but according to Elisa, what she says happens is she tries to escape. She says that she runs to the bathroom and she tries to lock the door behind her, but the lock is broken. She then attempts to escape out the bathroom window, but she finds that it's been painted shut. Oh my God. So when she tries to leave the bathroom and escape out the front door, Sam actually heads into the bathroom. I'm not sure if he just needed to use the toilet or what he was doing, Mm -hmm. but he leaves her unattended long enough that she scoops up her clothes off of the floor. So she scoops up her clothes, she sprints out of there. And then according to her, she runs immediately to the motel office and she starts banging on the office door Mm -hmm. trying to get help. Yeah. Because she's just been assaulted, right? Yeah. She's banging on the door, but Bertha on the other side of the locked door is on the phone and doesn't immediately answer the door. By the time Bertha actually responds to the knocks and opens the door, Elisa had already given up because she was scared that Sam was after her. Mm -hmm. So she gives up. She's like, she's not answering the door fast enough. So she just starts running and she finds a phone booth. She finds a phone booth. She drops the clothes and she calls the police and she tells the police that she's been kidnapped. Okay. They ask her, the police ask her like, well, where are you? And she says, I don't know. I've been kidnapped, which I'm not sure if on the drive up, she just wasn't paying attention. She might not be familiar with the area either. And so she doesn't really know. And I don't know that a a lot of factors could play into that. Like she's paying attention to the way Sam is driving because she doesn't want to die in a horrific car accident. She knows he's drunk. She's also terrified that he's taking her somewhere where she has no control over. So she's like... I, d- I don't know. It, it makes sense that she wouldn't know where she was to me. Yeah. And she's also just gone through an ordeal. So yeah. she might be kind of rattled. Exactly. If she's never been there before, maybe the word Hacienda didn't stick out to her or she didn't see the sign. Yeah. So she calls the police. She tells them that she's been kidnapped. And the only information she knows is the number on the phone booth. Okay. Because that's right in front of her. Right? Yeah. So she tells them like, I'm in this phone booth with this number. Can you come get me? Yeah. So police are dispatched to that phone booth. How they how they know where all the phone booths are, I don't know, but they get to her, right? So this phone call that Elisa places to police happens at 3.08 a.m. Number is TF 79984. 79984? That's a telephone booth I'm at. Uh-huh, well, what street are you on? I don't know. What's your problem there? Well, I, I was kidnapped. You were kidnapped? Right. But you have no idea what, where you're at? Um, no, it's pretty dark here. All right, can you stay right there in the phone booth? What's happening at this exact same time, and we know this based on the account of Bertha Franklin. So now we're switching to Bertha Franklin's point of view. Remember, she's the manager of the motel. Yeah. So Bertha Franklin, while this is happening, she remembers Elisa banging on her door, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't get to the door in time. And when she opens it, Elisa's gone. Bertha was on the phone at the time, actually, with the owner of the motel, a woman named Evelyn Card. And Evelyn corroborates this. What Bertha says happens next is she opens the door, Elisa's not there, so she just says, okay. So she closes the door and locks it. But then Sam comes and he's banging on her door very aggressively and yelling, is the girl in there? Yikes. And Bertha can tell that he's irate. Mm -hmm. 
she does not answer the door. She just ignores it. I don't know how often this probably happens, but being the manager of a skeezy motel late at night, she probably has a lot of stories to tell. Yeah, I want to answer that door. She does not open the door. He's obviously angry and aggressive, so she tries to ignore it. Mm-hmm. He ends up breaking the door down. What? Sam Cook breaks the door down. He searches her apartment because the office, I guess, also has like a kitchen and a bedroom. Mm-hmm. I think maybe she lives there. So Sam Cook searches the apartment and at the same time is asking her over and over again, like, where's the girl? I know she's here. And he's very angry. Yeah. He searches the kitchen, he searches the bedroom, and she's obviously not there. But he doesn't just leave and look for her elsewhere. He comes up to Bertha and he grabs her by the arms and starts twisting her arms <gasps> and shouting at her, telling her she needs to tell him where Elisa went. What the fuck? Bertha does not take this. She stands up for herself and she starts trying to tear away from him and they end up collapsing and he's on top of her. And when Elisa scooped up her clothes and left the room, she accidentally took a lot of his clothes with her. Oh, so he was naked? So... The only clothes Sam had when he left the hotel room was his sport coat and he had one shoe oh. and that was it. Well, that's adds a level of terrifying from Bertha's perspective. <laughs> exactly. So you have a very angry, violent, inebriated man who's assaulting naked. you naked. So you can understand how this is scary. Yeah. So Sam apparently, according to these witness accounts, must have come out of the bathroom. He saw that Elisa was gone, saw that his clothes were on. So I guess he threw on his coat and his shoe. I don't know why you would bother. (laughs) The one shoe. (laughs) He hops into his Ferrari and he drives around to the front. This is when he starts busting down the door. Now, Bertha was still on the line with the owner, Evelyn Card, while this was all happening. And she can hear it happening over the phone line. Does she call anybody? At 3.15, so this is seven minutes after Elisa had called the police, Evelyn Card also calls the police and says, my friend, Bertha, is being attacked, but police are already on their way. Because they're on their way because of Elisa's call. She's fighting for her life, trying to get Sam off of her, and she's punching, screaming. She actually tried to bite him, and eventually she breaks free well enough. Oh, she says that she kicks him really hard, hard enough that she's able to break free. She runs to get her gun, which is on the television, and she fires it three times. According to her, the first two shots miss. One goes up into the ceiling. The second one misses right above his head, but the third one pierces just under his left armpit into his chest, and it punctures both his lungs and his heart. Oh my God. And this is at close range. Apparently, even after he had been shot, he lunged at her and tried to continue assaulting her. Was, so question, was he sexually assaulting her as well or was he? No. No, okay. But no, it wasn't a sexual assault. He was just very angry and he felt like she had information that he needed. What in the hell? So he lunged at her even after he had been shot, like in the heart and the lungs. Yes. Okay. So, and this is according to her, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have his side of the story. So according to her, she shoots him, but he continues to still attack her, which is when she says that she grabs a broom and starts beating him with it until he eventually slumps to the floor and eventually dies. What in the... Okay. 
police arrive and he's already dead. So remember, Elisa made the first call at 3.08. They were already on their way. Evelyn Card made the second call to police at 3.15. Mm-hmm. And police arrive pretty shortly thereafter, but he's already dead because that was a fatal shot. Mm-hmm. So imagine what it's like as a police officer to arrive on scene. And it seems very obvious. They got a call about a woman getting kidnapped and then they find the man who supposedly kidnapped her and he's been shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Due to the racism at the time and the added fact that this is a really seedy hotel, it's in a bad part of town and violent crime is rampant in that area and police don't know who Sam Cook is, they are quoted as saying... It's just another N-word that got shot. <gasps> what the fuck? So police do not really investigate his death. Okay, but to, what is there to investigate besides that? Like, do, do we think that Elisa was lying? Do we think that Bertha was lying? Was there some type of, like, conspiracy? Because just from the information you've told me, that seems pretty straightforward, I guess. Like, Mm -hmm. except for the obvious, like, weird things about his personality. Like, why did he take Elisa to this weird CD motel? Why drive out of his way to go there when this is totally the opposite of what he would normally do? It's not in his character, right? From what we know about him. Not at all. So that's why, obviously, there was a huge uproar over police negligence because they think it's cut and dry. They see, in their eyes, just another black man got shot and killed, which they see every day. So they don't really secure the crime scene. Obviously, they get his body out of there, but they don't do any kind of forensics. And his family and his fans are very upset, and immediately they don't believe the story from Elisa and Bertha. Yeah. Because they're having the same questions that you have, which is, no, my brother would not go to a CD motel. No, he would not rape a woman. He could have any woman he wanted. He didn't need to rape someone. Yeah. That was one of the pieces of logic used over and over again from various different people. If you listen to other podcasts or you listen to documentaries about this case, mm-hmm. I personally don't like to paint rape as something that doesn't apply to men who well, can successful get men. Yeah. Yeah. Because rape we know. isn't about that. Exactly. So I don't want to paint it in that light that Oh, he could have any woman he wanted. He didn't need to rape anyone because that's that's not how that works. But that was one of the arguments that his family and friends made. Like, this doesn't make sense. He he was always very high class. What was he doing at a $3 an hour hooker motel is what they said. And then there are accounts from... He had an open casket funeral, mm-hmm. which a lot of very famous people attended. He had a lot of prestigious friends. Ray Charles was there and sang. One of his best friends was Muhammad Ali, and Muhammad Ali was there. One of his friends said that when she looked at his body, she described his body in a lot worse condition than the way that Bertha described the attack. Um, She said that his head almost looked like it was completely disjointed from his body. What? And that his hands were severely bruised and practically broken. So immediately there were conspiracies because... His family and friends felt like this was really out of character for him, and he was really high profile, and we know that he was thinking about ending his relationship with Alan Klein in just a few days. Mm -hmm. Also, his close relationship with Muhammad Ali adds another possible conspiracy theory to this, which is that Muhammad Ali was really good friends with Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali at this time were being heavily surveyed by the FBI, Oh. And we know that Malcolm X was eventually assassinated. And we know that the FBI has a track record 
I I looked up Sam Cooke because again I knew nothing about him. Um, and in his in the description of him, it said he was an activist, a civil rights activist. Yes. yes. So I touched on that briefly, but he was also like he would do benefits for the civil rights movement. He knew Martin Luther King Jr. He was actually a lot closer to Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. So he had controversial friends. Um, On top of that, there's another conspiracy theory that the music industry at this time in Los Angeles was heavily controlled by the mob. Whoa. And Sam was kind of a pioneer at the time in the sense that he was making his own record label Mm -hmm. and he was taking all of his profits and he was cutting out all the middlemen that normally would profit off of artists. Okay, but here's, here's my conspiracy thought then. Do we think that Alan Klein knew that Sam Cooke was on to him, knew that he was going to cancel the contract, felt that Sam Cooke was somewhat dispensable and told the FBI to keep tabs on Sam Cooke and then created a case against Sam Cooke. And then the FBI staged his death. Because I imagine the reason Alan Klein went after somebody like Sam Cooke is that he was a rising star, but he was also black. And so he had less social power and Alan had multiple legs up on him. Like he he had super good accounting skills. He knew Sam was in a vulnerable place with his current music contract. And if he could get Sam to trust him just enough, he could totally take advantage of him. Sam could be his total pawn and and fund him, right? He could just use Sam. But when Sam started to figure out what was going on, it became a problem for Alan. And Alan decided he could just get rid of Sam and be entitled, again, because he was a beneficiary, he could be entitled to all of Sam's assets and money. Is that what we think is happening? People usually swing wildly one of two ways, at least from what I've noticed, which is people either swing toward, yes, it was a conspiracy and he was getting too big and he was, like you said, he was dispensable and Alan Klein, we already know, was pretty seedy and was possibly capable of murder or at least conspiring. Or had lots of money and influence with certain groups of people. And then it wouldn't really be surprising if a mob, if it was a mob hit or it was um, the FBI, right? Because they can stage things to look like murders. And they They have have to get, Yeah. They would just have to get Bertha and Elisa in on it and also Evelyn Card. So they've got three different women who they have to all keep on the same page. People swing wildly the other, which is that they just truly and honestly believe that what happened is Sam was vulnerable and he fell victim to his vices. A lot of people say, you know, he probably shouldn't have been drinking and driving. He probably shouldn't have been having these extramarital affairs. And it's eventually what led to his death. Either way, the circumstances are very strange. That's, I think, pretty undeniable that it is strange and questionable. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it even crazier on you. (laughs) Police discovered later that Elisa Boyer is a prostitute. Um, that makes her more vulnerable and that immediately makes me think she could be paid off by somebody. So she was intentionally, no, this, this makes it feel a little bit more realistically that, that she could have been hired by somebody in an attempt to, to lure him to his death. Yes. Yes. Okay. Who was the guitarist or the guy that she was with originally? Was he on on it too? Yeah, see, that's the question. If you go down the conspiracy route that he was set up to get murdered, then you have to assume that Elisa was a plant. Yeah. And that she purposefully seduced him to spend the night with her so that she could 
she could take him to that motel, mm-hmm. and maybe that would explain why it was that motel. Like, she specifically wanted to go to this motel, and he took her there. And the police also later find out that Bertha Franklin had been arrested previously for being a madam. What? Okay, okay, okay. Yes. Okay, so now I'm I'm starting (laughs) to feel like the FBI fucking did it. Because some people's theory is that the FBI weren't involved, that it purely was just Elisa and Bertha, that they were working together and that Bertha was her madam, right? Mm -hmm. Like her pimp. And that it was really just a ruse. Elisa seduced Sam. And when he suggested that they go to a private place, she said, I know a place we should go there. And that's why they ended up at the Hacienda. So one theory is that they maybe weren't planning on killing him But when Elisa scooped up her clothes and took his, she also took his pants, which still had that wad of thousands of dollars in it. Did they recover money on him? So the money was never recovered. According to her, she said that she ran to the phone booth and that she stashed, she put on her clothes and just stashed his clothes under a stairwell. Why would she stash his clothes? Thinking like if I was kidnapped... And I escaped the hotel room where I had just been sexually assaulted and I scooped up my clothes and I put my clothes back on and I accidentally got some of my assaulter's clothes with it. I would just chuck them. I don't think I would be like, oh, I need to stash these somewhere unless there was a reason I needed to stash them. Like exactly money. There was a lot of money in them that I wanted. Sport coat that he was wearing had like $100 in it. And they're Mm -hmm. like, well, it's not a robbery. He still got $100 in his pocket. What they didn't know because they didn't know he was Sam Cooke and that he was worth a lot more than $100 is that his pants pocket had thousands of dollars in it. And she also, so when she scooped up his pants, she got that wad of bills and she also got his credit cards. What we know is that the cash was never recovered, but the cards were never used. So if she did steal it, she didn't use his cards. So your theory actually explains my next biggest question about this, which is that if Elisa was a prostitute, it doesn't make sense that she would call the police or that she would draw the police attention to her. Uh Because usually people who are involved in sex work or any kind of illegal activity, the last thing they want is for police to know who they are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. They're trying to stay off the radar. Some people, they hear this story and they're like, obviously she's telling the truth and she really was assaulted. And she's the victim in this circumstance, because why would she call the police and say that she's been kidnapped? That would only draw police, draw police's attention to her and then possibly get her into trouble. So they think that she must have been telling the truth. This must have been really traumatic and awful for her to have outed herself like that. Yes. Which does make sense. It does. Your theory tells me that if it really was orchestrated by a higher authority, then... I, okay, I think Alan Klein was involved too. I think he's the one who, I I think he's the one who tipped off the FBI and made up a story about Sam Cooke being dangerous and that the FBI should look into him. Because it would be really easy for him to reach out to the FBI and say, hey, my client is into some seedy shit and he's friends with Malcolm X, you know, the guy that you're like really not happy with right now. U.S. government, and and he's also said some inflammatory statements. I think you should keep an eye on this guy. And and they probably would. They were also at the time trying to close people like Malcolm X in by cutting off his allies. They mm-hmm. they were trying to cut the head off of the Black Panther movement and the civil rights movement. So your your theory is pretty on par with what his family believes because, like we mentioned earlier, it was completely out of Sam's character. Yeah. Uh, I'm also curious, did Barbara Campbell say anything 
did she ever come out and say like that Sam was violent against her or because I imagine if that was in his character, Barbara would have been on the receiving end of of that violence if that was in Sam's character to be violent. Out of everything that I've read about him, I haven't seen a single account from any of the women that he's been involved with or any of his friends or family that he was a violent person. Okay. So his death was ruled a justifiable homicide. Um, Elisa Boyer and Bertha Franklin went to court and they testified. And they were kind of the nation's most hated people for a while because people obviously loved Sam Cooke and these were the women supposedly responsible for his death. So they actually testified in court wearing disguises. They didn't want to have their picture taken or their image published. It came out later that Elisa was involved in prostitution and she actually ended up going to jail years later for murdering her boyfriend. So that is the story of the death of Sam Cooke. To this day, it's... It's still, it's still a justifiable homicide. So Bertha Franklin claimed that she was acting in self-defense. And according to her story, that makes sense. And that's how it was ruled. But obviously, there's a lot of people who disagree with that and do believe that it was more insidious than that. Do you have anything else you want to say? Um, holy shit. This has been fun. Fuck Alan Klein. I know he's dead, <laughs> but like... He broke up the Beatles and he murdered Sam Cooke. Fuck the Beatles. Who I don't, I don't give a fuck about them. But what the fuck? Well, this was infuriating. Thank you. Thanks for ruining my fucking day. The people deserve to know the truth. Yeah, I want to fucking know. And, and his family needs to know, too, because they not only killed this man if they did this, but they destroyed his reputation in the process. Yeah. Okay, you want to sign us off? Uh, yeah. You need to you need to tell our listeners when we'll be back. My minestrone homies, soup season is officially over, unfortunately. This is our last episode until the first week of October in 2023. We will have an entire new season of all new episodes for you um and we're cooking them up currently, so stay tuned. Hold on, I've got I've got news. Oh, say the news. So, in addition to a brand new season starting in October with all new episodes. I'm also going to have a baby. What? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> You're Pregunte? <laughs> yeah, I'm Pregunte. <laughs> oh my fucking God. I'm glad I got this on a recording. Congratulations. <laughs> oh my God. So little baby Canapus number three is due in November. Oh. Oh, we're going to be fucking busy. Hannah's been busy, but we're about to be busier. <laughs> that'll that'll be happening, but hopefully we'll have some episodes recorded before then. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, you ruined my day, but you made it better. Should I finish the rest of the outro? Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Crime Soup Podcast. Be sure to find us on social media and let us know your thoughts on this case. You can find us on TikTok at Crime Soup Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Crime underscore Soup. We also have a website, CrimeSoupPodcast.com, where you can listen to all of our episodes and buy your very own Crime Soup merch. We'll see you in October. Stay safe and bon appetit. <laughs>